Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Robert Draper has covered wars in Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen. But his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind, is about a war closer to home. It just looked otherworldly. It looked like something out of a Francis Ford Coppola movie and, you know, Apocalypse Now. And I could see police and these soon-to-be rioters duking it out. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. There are a lot of great books about the Trump presidency, but Roberts is the first to focus exclusively on the GOP during the crucial 18-month period after January 6th. You know, the subtitle of the book originally was How the Republican Party Lost Its Mind, and I realized, actually, no, it's not a history book. The subtitle of Robert's book, emphasizing when, not how, is important. And it's when the Republican Party lost its mind. And so, as a kind of narrative framework, I said, this is the way we ought to be thinking about this as a moment. It's a period when a group of Trump-inspired elected officials helped the former president solidify his grip over the party. The book is character-driven. You'll travel along with far-right representatives Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates as they fight their GOP elders. And you'll see up close how Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell grapple with this insurrection. Robert, a contributor for The New York Times Magazine and National Geographic, has long been one of my favorite chroniclers of the right in America. And not just because he's a gifted writer who understands people as well as politics, which you can't say about every political reporter, but also because he approaches the subject with an empathy that I've always suspected comes from his own background. He grew up in deep red Texas, the son of a conservative, politically active dad, and the grandson of Leon Jaworski, the Democratic lawyer who Richard Nixon appointed as Watergate special prosecutor after he fired the first one. Hey, how's it going, guys? Robert joined us from his home in the Brookland neighborhood of Washington, D.C., the day after the book was released. So we're going to be squeezing ourselves in here, if that's okay. Here's one chair, but do you... Robert pulls no punches in this excellent book. It starts with a very personal dedication, which I kept coming back to as I read the book, because I thought it captured Robert's frame of mind as he set out to understand what happened, quite literally, to his father's Republican Party. I I dedicated this book to the memory of my father, also Robert Draper, who died in uh, November of 2019. My dad had been a lifelong and proud Republican, but um, uh, being a Republican meant something a great deal different than what it means now. Uh, On his literal deathbed, Uh, He did not at all renounce um, his party, but uh, he did, on his literal deathbed, um, express the hope in November of 2019 
that Joe Biden would become the nominee and defeat Donald Trump. He um, despised uh, what Trump was doing to the party. My, 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 my dad was a you know conservative in the sense that he believed in personal responsibility, but to him that also meant you know not making excuses, and not joining cults. Yeah. Uh, he also um, didn't believe in demonizing the other side. Indeed, um, one person on the other side was his wife of 64 years, my mother, and uh, they cheerfully canceled out each other's votes every election cycle. That's the Republican Party that I grew up with, and it's the Republican Party that over time I began to cover. But that Republican Party has undergone drastic changes in the last uh, you know, six, seven years. The reason I start with that is because I do think, given the, the way our profession is dominated by East Coast and West Coast, you know, blue city, uh, culturally liberal uh, denizens, and I, I think that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always thought that that really helped inform your coverage of the right, especially, and not to say that your coverage was uh, sympathetic in a, in a way that's not appropriate, but you have always been one of my favorite writers on Republicans because I think you understand the Republican Party in a way that a lot of political journalists don't, you know, a lot of political journalists see, you know, you know, don't come from where you came from, maybe looking at the Republican Party as, as strictly as anthropologists, you know. And so just explain to me, I could be totally wrong about that, but just explain to me a little bit about your, your background and how that's, uh, and what you think, you think if I'm right or wrong about any of that. You're, you're not wrong about it. And I, and I do view Republicans as not merely, you know, not, not as cultural curiosities, but as <laughs> people akin to, you know, everyone I grew up with. I, I grew up in a, a very conservative area of West Houston. Um, my father's side of the family was um, across the board to Republican. Uh, my, my mother's father, the Watergate special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, was um, what they called back then a conservative Democrat, which was just meant Republican. And uh, somehow all of these years, I did not know that. That, that, that. That's wild. So you grew up in a, in a like a political, you grew up understanding politics, it being very real. And Yeah, well, it's interesting because what Woodward and Bernstein and other members of the press did during Watergate introduced me to the notions of political journalism. And for that matter, reading about my grandfather, on the front page was the first reason I found in my life not to just to turn immediately to comics or the sports page. And, and uh, so, you know, I've been surrounded by and kind of the default has been in my world, um, conservatism, Republican politics. And and, uh, and I think that, that I kind of fell into this slipstream of um, covering Republicans because there were, you know, so few of journalists who did not view them as, as I say, as curiosities. And so this leads to sort of a, a more barbed way at the same question, and it goes for all of us who've, who've covered politics. Are there things, Robert, that we should have been paying more attention to, currents in the Republican Party that suddenly metastasized and just became the dominant uh, currents in the Trump era, now that we you know can look back, I'm sure you, you think of moments, uh, you know, a lot of people point to the rise of Sarah Palin. Um, but are, are there certain currents that we all should have given more attention, given where the Republican Party is at now? Well, Ryan, I confess I'm at the very top of the list of culpable um, or gullible writers. I, um, I simply did not appreciate as well as I should have what kind of backlash 
the election of the first black president in American history created, you know, in, in uh, the currents of, of American political life. Um, I knew there were, you know, some people who were racist in America, and, and uh, but I did not fully appreciate how driving a force it was. And Trump tapped into that, you know, that's a, um, we can now see in the rearview mirror that there was much more to the Tea Party in 2009 and 2010 than grievances relating to you know, getting our fiscal house in order, right? Uh, there were cultural yeah. things at work. But I remember very well in 2015 when, when Trump ran for president and, and thinking to myself, holy crap, how is this guy, you know, this this wealthy Manhattan developer going to appeal to rank-and-file voters in South Carolina and Alabama and Mississippi? And um, the answer was effortlessly because there was a familiarity I didn't fully appreciate at the time with Trump because of The Apprentice. But I also I think it's that they they had the same enemies, you know, the the cultural elites, uh, and for that matter, people of color. You know, the, the the notion that there was this invasion coming across the border, the desire to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it, uh, was more than just an applause line. And and so I think you know this is the roundabout way of saying that I'm as culpable as the next journalist, Ryan, and not fully grasping these kind of cultural and racial grievances. Um, that first surfaced and were hiding in plain sight with the election of Obama that um, Trump immediately seized upon in a way that no other Republican candidate in that field did. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I, I don't think you're, I wouldn't use the word culpable. I think, I, I think there are always these demons lurking in, in, in the populace. And there was a, there was a sort of a, um, a, a gentleman's agreement between both parties that you don't stoke them and beyond a gentleman's agreement and I, a sense that you couldn't win anymore by, by by stoking them and of course that was his bet is that like oh yeah actually it won't cost votes it'll it'll, it'll, it'll gain votes by pushing boundaries that politicians hadn't pushed in in, in many years but your books in case listeners uh, haven't read them, them all they're very uh, character focused do you like to sort of follow a, a few strong characters through uh, a period of time and the time you're covering here is the the post January 6th uh, period uh, how did you decide on which characters uh, to focus on when you when you when you set about writing the book sure and well, and just to just to throw in one more question mm-hmm. there not to yeah, load yeah. you up too much but uh, but just where was your head in terms of you know, oh, the last time I did this, and I, I you know, I, I wrote about the the Tea Party Republicans in the House, and and oh boy, things have have, have really changed. You know, just what, what was your sense going into the project compared to that that last one? Yeah, well, it's interesting because this project was actually proposed to me by Penguin Press's editor in chief Scott Moyers, and and uh, he did so, I think, and um, I guess you had to do it then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, I had I'd, I'd pitched a few others, and they didn't fly with him, and so um, so he basically said, you know, we you should do something on the kind of post-Trump Republican Party and all of the obvious fractures, and and I agreed to it, and I think I got the contract roughly, let's say, December fifteenth, December twentieth of twenty twenty. Now it's worth like sticking a pin in that because we should remember what was happening and what wasn't happening back then. <laughs> Trump Trump had lost; he hadn't conceded. We all figured in the Bellway he's going to concede. You know, it's. I mean, that was always the word. You know, Mulvaney and McCarthy and others were saying, yeah, you know, it's going to take some time. There'll be stages of grief, et cetera. We certainly didn't count on anything like what occurred in the insurrection. Another thing had happened um, that struck me as interesting, but I didn't think it was would be all that significant. And that's that this um, QAnon ad- adherent named Marjorie Taylor Greene 
was elected to Congress from um, a, a very conservative district in Northwest Georgia. Um, I thought the fact that um, the Republican Party abided her um, signaled something a little bit distressing. But I, you know, if you'd asked me in December of 2020, how many pages are you going to, you know, accord Marjorie Taylor Greene? I would have said one and a half. You know, and and um, then. I reported for work to do my first reporting, as fate would have it, on the morning of January the 6th, 2021. And uh, I was interviewing some people um, in the House office buildings and then decided I might as well, as long as I was there, show up to see the routine ceremonial certification of the vote. Wasn't able to get into the press gallery because of social distancing. So I just wandered around the Capitol uh, while the certification was taking place and, and moved over to the west side and saw these police rushing out of um, the West Terrace in an obvious state of, of alarm. And I got closer, and then I, that's when I began to experience what was happening on the West Terrace with all these cops coming in, beaten, and with you know faces distended, uh, and then really saw the beginning of the malaise. So all of which is to say that— and, well, Just um, to slow down there, because this yeah. is one of the most gripping chapters in the book. It's, it's, it's the beginning of the book, and it's amazing no matter how many— accounts of January 6th I read. But just finish that story, because you, you see some of the cops coming in, and you ask them about what's going on. You, yeah. you didn't know that the, the, the protest had turned into a, a riot. And you kind of get dragged into sort of, not dragged in, but you helping these, these officers uh, get some ice, and, 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 and you have sort of close call there, too. So just finish that story, because I think it's, sure. it's pretty fascinating. Sure, yeah, because you're right, Ryan. When I showed up at, I think, 10 or 10.30 that morning, there were protesters outside. But it just looked like, you know, the, the usual gathering. Didn't think it was going to be all that special. But it was astonishing to see these police um, stagger into the West Terrace. And when they would do so, the, the doors on that side of the building would open. And I remember seeing all of these people hanging from what would be the inaugural rafters. And it just looked otherworldly. It looked like something out of a Francis Ford Coppola movie and, you know, Apocalypse Now. And and, uh, uh, and I could see um, police and uh, these soon-to-be rioters duking it out. And and the police, when they would stagger in, I, I asked them, you know, when they were covered with mace, you know, what happened? Did you spray mace at them for crowd control and some of it blew back? And I said, no, they're, they're spraying at us. And one of them said, I, I don't even know who these people are. And the, the, they, there were looks of terror, but most of all, just astonishment and, and astonishment that was probably mirrored in my own face. And so as you were referencing, I, uh, along with a, a, um, a Capitol staffer, um, sort of set up an ad hoc water station to help flush uh, their eyes out with mace. At a certain point, they brought in some guy who had been fighting with the police, and he had he was zip-tied, his arms behind him. He, he was in paramilitary gear, and he had a patch on his left shoulder that said, fuck Antifa. And um, they sat him down somewhere, but he was never arrested because they, they didn't have time to process people. So somehow he vanished. Um, I could see that the place was going to blow, and, and uh, um, as it were, so I, I ran out through the tunnels and into the parking garage of the Rayburn building, and now I was outside. I decided to stick around, you know, saw these people in paramilitary gear gathering around the house buildings. I, 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 I moved over to the east side uh, and watched really in horror as um, the crowds pushed their way in on the east side. You know, the crowd had absolute control then, and the crowd itself seemed absolutely uncontrollable. 
um, there was this visceral roar uh, throughout. You know, occasionally you could hear actual words. And, I, and as I got closer, I would, um, I remember seeing a middle-aged man with two teenage boys who were probably his sons saying in a quavering voice, sons, freedom isn't free. You know, sometimes you have to fight for it like our founding fathers did uh, in the Revolutionary War. I think this is one of those times. And they disappeared into the crowd. I, I never knew what happened to them. Um, you know, Ryan, I've I've been in Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, um, uh, uh, Yemen, a lot of really troubled, you know, conflict zones. I just never expected to see um, a, a mob of this sort take control over, you know, one of our bastions of democracy. And it was an extraordinary day. I will never forget it. I don't want ever to forget it. And um, even though it's, you know, traumatizing at times to, to contemplate it. And I guess out of that day, you realized what, the, um, what this book would be about, essentially, is the fallout from that day. Yeah, but I thought that, Ryan, you know, frankly, that um, this was the day when the Republican Party would realize we've gone too far. You know, we, we've got to right. tame this savage beast. You know, we've got to divest ourselves of the elements that gave rise to this. And that, of course, is not what happened. And so um, I, I knew that my imaginings of the Republican Party were no longer operative, as they say, as I witnessed January the 6th. But even, even on that day, I did not predict what would follow the doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down of um, the same elements that gave rise to the insurrection. In the early 2021 period, when all of us believed, or not maybe not all of us, but most of us believed, and because people like McCarthy and McConnell were saying it, and some of the polls suggested it, that the Republican Party was finally going to unchain itself from Donald Trump, there was one surprising voice early in the in in the book who predicted that 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 would not happen at that uh, uh, even after January sixth. Um, you know, he, he would sort of return stronger. Well, one month after the insurrection, the day after Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped from her committee assignments, she yeah. held this defiant press conference and said about Donald Trump, the party is still his. It doesn't belong to anyone else. And um, she was, in fact, prophetic. You know, at, at the time, it seemed preposterous. And uh, But uh, the reality is, just one week prior, Kevin McCarthy, the, the House Republican um, minority leader, had uh, made his pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago very famously and um, essentially kissed Trump's ring because it had been Mar McCarthy's calculation the party couldn't survive without Trump. And uh, not necessarily that you know he loved Trump, but that he saw the hold Trump had over the Republican base. He also believed, McCarthy did and does, that, um, that Trump could turn on the Republican Party anytime he wanted, including the Republican House, and dash it to smithereens. That, uh, and so... Uh, he felt the need to tame the beast by embracing the beast. I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but just because you mentioned McCarthy, there's great reporting on McCarthy in the book, and we're all going to get to know Kevin McCarthy a little bit better, it looks like. What's the you, you have an interesting dissection in the book of the differences between McCarthy's leadership and McConnell's leadership. Take us through that and how your reporting illuminated how those two people are different and how they have uh, grappled with the post-January 6th navigation of Donald Trump. Sure. In January or February of 2021, there were three strands of thought among Republican leadership vis-a-vis -vis Trump. The one held by Kevin McCarthy was that the party needed Trump 
needed to embrace Trump, and that's what he undertook to do. Liz Cheney had the diametrically opposite view that the party had to rid itself of Trump. Trump, after all, um, under Trump, the Republican Party had lost everything, every branch of government, and uh, that he was abhorrent to democratic ideals. So uh, the party needed to distance itself from Trump and condemn Trump and make sure that he never returned to a position of influence. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, occupied what I guess you could say Ryan was kind of a middle ground between those two polar viewpoints. His view was that uh, the party needed to move on from Trump, but that you did not move on from Trump by always talking about Trump. You turned the page by changing the subject. And this actually was, you know, a, a point of significant disagreement between Cheney and McConnell. It, it kind of drove McConnell crazy that Cheney was always talking about Donald Trump. And, and, and it drove Cheney crazy that McConnell would let stand the many outrageous claims that Trump would make, you know, in the weeks and months after Biden became president. But McConnell, you know, did believe and does believe now that Trump and Trumpism had to go. But as for Trumpism, McConnell had and still has a point of view that I think um, is already being tested, to put it mildly. His point of view is that, okay, some of these Trumpy guys who are running for Senate, for example, it's um, like Herschel Walker, not McConnell's cup of tea at all, but he figures, first of all, they'll vote for him to be majority leader if, if that opportunity arises. And secondly, McConnell's viewpoint was that these guys are subject to influence and that Mitch McConnell will moderate them in a sense. But I mean, I haven't seen that happen with Senators Hawley, Tuberville, Ron Johnson, etc. And so I'm not so convinced that a Senator Oz, a Senator Vance, a Senator Walker will even vote for McConnell as majority leader, much less fall in McConnell's sway. But McConnell has an incredible amount of self-confidence and a belief as well that um, the institution with him as the explainer of that institution will cool these hot-headed folks. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've heard some people in McConnell world talk about the difference between, you know, Ted Cruz in the run-up to his his first presidential campaign and what a pain in the ass he was and how much, you know, how much grief he gave McConnell. And then I guess the more recent, uh, the 2000, like, 17, 18, 19 Ted Cruz, where he was a bit more of a of a team player and McConnell didn't have as many problems. But the list you just described uh, cuts against uh, McConnell's theory of the institution being such a, a moderating influence. Um, yeah, he believes he can outlast that he can outlast MAGA, basically. McConnell does. And uh, I do not think that the evidence supports that belief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's going to be two issues. He's going to have the Cruz like uh, senators who are uh, like Hawley and Cotton who are running for president. Right. So he's going to have a big contingent running for president. I would assume whether Trump runs or not, but maybe not as many if Trump runs. And then he's going to have perhaps some of these uh, new, more fringy folks that maybe while they're not running for president, they're very attuned to the MAGA world. So. One of the mysteries of the, the book I thought uh, that was answered for me is about Elise Stefanik and how she sort of got religion on becoming a more Trumpy Republican. 
she replaces Liz Cheney uh, when Liz Cheney uh, goes up for the, the second vote and is thrown out of the Republican leadership in the House. And you describe this scene where, where Elise Stefanik learns of, about the secrets of, of WinRed and suggests that it really had a, had a sort of galvanizing effect on her. Just describe that, how a self-proclaimed moderate, very Trump skeptical, suddenly starts sounding like some of the fringiest uh, Republicans in the House. Yeah, I mean, your characterization of Stefanik is correct, Ryan, that she was regarded as a you know, the quintessential establishment Republican and befriended by everyone in that crowd. Um, certainly no one's idea of a Trumpy Republican. Uh, there are some who believe that began to change when Trump visited her district at Fort Drum, and that could well be. But when Trump was impeached and, and Stefanik was uh, on the House Intelligence Committee, she began to ask these very, very fiery questions and, and to be a real Trump defender. And it's clear that, that um, that's when the world took notice of her. But what has yet to be told in, uh, until I told it in my book was that um, she began to recognize how the fiery rhetoric, um, how saying things in a more extreme way, in a more you know hyperbolic way, would be financially rewarding. WinRed, as you mentioned, is this sort of online. Yeah, explain what WinRed is. Explain what, and the, like how you. Because when I was reading this, I thought, all right, this is the first time I understand how someone goes from A to B, a to B and it it's finally makes you know it really makes sense. But explain what WinRed is. Sure. WinRed is a, um, a digital fundraising platform for Republicans. It was started a couple of years ago, and, um, and it has basically become the sanctioned and thus highly profitable um, uh, digital arm, a fundraising arm for the GOP. And uh, Stefanik never liked it. She, th she thought that this was kind of a scam and all it did was just enrich those people. And, and uh, But then during the impeachment, she started uh, raising online. And, and someone who was in the room when she started working with WinRed um, saw that she was astonished and, and, and in the end radicalized to see how the more extreme her comments regarding how Trump was being treated, how the Democrats were handling this investigation, the more extreme those words, the more money she was making. And so she, she literally saw the financial rewards of being an attack dog against the Democrats and defendant of Trump. Uh, she made money off of that in a way that she never had before, and that gave rise to the Elise Stefanik now that most people know. All right. So someone who sort of got there before her is uh, is your friend, your your buddy Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you spent a lot of time tracking and reporting on. And you know, I was I think I was skeptical at first that she deserved the amount of attention and and treatment of a big New York Times magazine excerpt and. For listeners that don't know, you excerpted some of the MTG stuff in the Times recently. But reading it in full, I think you persuaded me that she is as important as you say she is. And I don't want to dwell on her too much because you've, you've talked about it quite a bit. But what's your argument about the source of her power? Why shouldn't we just consider her, I don't know, in the McConnell way? Like, you know, she's just kind of a, a, a fringe... Um, you know, it's funny that we have this conversation putting together playbook every day. There's some MTG outrage almost daily. 
And so I was like, why, you know, should we really put that in there today? There's one of those every day. There's some crazy thing that, that, that she says. What's the point? Um, so why should we pay more attention to her? And why should we believe that she's actually as important as, uh, as you suggest? Yeah, um, you know, readers or people maybe who didn't read um, the excerpt have, some of them have complained that why are we giving her the attention she so much craves? I, I understand that reflex, I really do, because there's no question that she has this ceaseless yearning for attention. But there's also no question, as my reporting caused me to conclude, that she is a person of significant influence within the Republican Party. In large part, that's because she commands the loyalty of Trump as the ultimate Trump loyalist herself. And so, uh, as Kevin McCarthy learned very quickly, if you attempt to criticize Marjorie Taylor Greene, Trump's got her back and you potentially could pay a price. The other thing, though, is that she's a fundraising dynamo of the kind that we've rarely seen from a freshman uh, in her first quarter, even as she was getting stripped from her committee assignments. In fact, maybe because of that, she raised $3.2 million, which is an unheard of sum for a freshman. And in her first year, uh, has uh, raised uh, more money than all but three House Republicans. And two of those three are Kevin McCarthy and uh, Steve Scalise, who are in leadership, in other words. So so she's raised a crap load of money. And and, and uh, none of it um, and none of it by going to uh, fundraisers at the, you know, at uh, at the Palm or whatever the steakhouse yeah. du jour is. Yeah, and, no, that's and, exactly. Like, and having a, you know, a financial services committee spot. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. exactly right. Yeah. So it's, um, uh, no, they're all online, small donations, all of them. So, you know, that then leads me to the other point. She has a national following and her extreme rhetoric has become essentially mainstreamed. I mean, it's, it's now all but a given, Ryan, that a Republican House majority, regardless of what Kevin McCarthy has said in the press in the last day or two, is going to press for uh, articles of impeachment against Biden using whatever rationale they can come up with. Well, that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing literally Biden's first day in office as president. She was introducing articles of impeachment and people rolled their eyes at her. Now it is, you know, accepted Republican policy, basically. And and uh, the same with calling Democrats um, communists, you know, OK, you know, liberals, socialists, et cetera, you know, radical socialists, but communists. But now the NRCC uses that in its fundraising appeals. You know, it's uh, so she, um, you know, as uh, someone with far right positions has crept into the mainstream. And, and she did all that without my giving her attention. All this has happened. So, you know, my reporting is now so essentially pointing to these activities that have taken place that have been hiding in plain sight. And, and while I do think that it is you know, unadvisable, as you were indicating, Ryan, to sort of rise to the bait with the daily outrage of, you know, Biden equals Hitler and, and stuff like that, that, that Green does for clicks and donations. It's nonetheless the case that she commands a lot of influence. And, and she was, you know, a bit braggadocious in saying so to me, you know, saying that, that uh, uh, McCarthy's going to have to give me a lot of leeway um, or the base is going to be pissed off. But the evidence actually bears out that that's true. And McCarthy's behavior bears out that that's true. So you report that McCarthy has warned Democrats not to uh, go forward with the kind of, you know, 
I don't know if you call it the death sentence for for a House member, but the you know the uh, very severe punishment of removing her from uh, her committees and removing Paul Gosar from his. Do you have any doubt that they'll be restored to their committees under a um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? I have no doubt that they will not only be restored to committee assignments, but as I report in my book, that each of them individually, Green and Gosar, has been assured by Kevin McCarthy that they will get, quote, better assignments, unquote. Um, And meanwhile, certain Democrats can be expected to be stripped of their committee assignments. We already saw McCarthy, it was reported, I guess, today or yesterday, has indicated that he intends to remove Eric Swalwell, for example, from uh, the Intel Committee. Uh, But there's going to be more of that to come. This is you know, the GOP has a real appetite for bloodlust. And I heard that over and over in my reporting. Um, it remains to be seen what they'll be able to do governance-wise, but they certainly can, you know, as Green said to me, um, uh, have a lot of investigations, you know, from Hunter Biden's laptop to supposed malfeasances at the border. So they're going to be the party of retribution, at least for a while. Because they're not going to be able to pass much with Biden as president and uh, perhaps uh, Democrats can still controlling the Senate or you know, Republicans not having a, a veto-proof uh, Senate or filibuster-proof Senate. Um, one question about Liz Cheney. You reminded me about her point of view on Trump during the first impeachment when she was pretty right in line with most other Republicans in terms of uh, defending him and attacking Democrats for moving forward with that. And it, it, did, it just reminded me that the Liz Cheney we know now and her reaction to January 6th, you know, was a process. Um, What can you tell us about her evolution? Was it happening bit by bit and then January 6th, you know, put things over the edge? Because she was essentially a, a pretty standard issue not Trump Republican, but she was not at war with Donald Trump, you you reminded me in reading this book, before January 6th. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she made it her business, Ryan, having been elected, you know, in 2016, the same year that Trump was, to try to support Trump administration policies and try to get as much done on behalf of Republicans. She quickly became conference chair. And in being conference chair, she was the head of Republican messaging. And so when Trump was impeached the first time, uh, Liz Cheney, as conference chair, led the charge against the Democrats. And, and the language that she used was you know, very, very, very harsh and even arguably shrill. But if you parse the language, it was never quite a defense of Trump in terms of like, oh, total exoneration or our dear president would never do such a thing. She disapproved of his conduct. The inflection point for Cheney was the coronavirus. Why? Because her dad is, you know, a high-risk person because of his heart condition and the very flip manner in which Trump was talking about COVID as something that would pass one day like a miracle uh, and the also, you know, dismissive attitude towards masks and the often very harsh language about Dr. Fauci, she all found to be very unbecoming. So the break was already starting. I haven't asked her, but I would certainly suspect that she voted holding her nose for Trump in 2020. But when Trump lost, it didn't take her you know, long at all to conclude that, that 
He did lose. And uh, Biden won and we need to move on. But so, you know, you know, January the 6th obviously changed everything for her. And, uh, and as I disclose in the book, while they were sequestered in the Longworth House office building, Cheney was carrying on three different conversations, one with Mitch McConnell and Speaker Pelosi from their remote location to see about when they could return to the Capitol, two with Democrats urging them to get articles of impeachment written up in a hurry, and three negotiating with House Freedom Caucus members, trying to get them to cease and desist from their claims that decertification needed to take place. She was trying to convince them that in the wake of this crazy riot, they needed to put a rest to that. She did not succeed. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Paul Gosar as well. He spent a, a lot of time explaining who this character is. And I assume we're going to be hearing a lot more about Paul Gosar if Republicans take back the House but um, just to back up, what was the, your sort of selection process uh, like in figuring out which Republicans, uh, which stories to tell in, in this book? Yeah. So, I mean, Gosar had been a character of minor interest to me for a while because he was part of the Tea Party class. I interviewed him for the first time in early 2011. His chief of staff was a guy I'd known for a while, Tom Van Flyn, because Van Flyn used to be Sarah Palin's general counsel and helped secure Palin's endorsement of then-candidate Gosar in 2010, which became determinative in him winning the primary. But frankly, he struck me as such an oddball in 2011, I thought, this is a guy we're never going to hear from again. Um, yet he stuck around. And then I still never thought I'd be writing about him when I got the contract to do the book. But then January the 6th happened, and uh, he was the one who stood up along with Senator Ted Cruz and called for the decertification, you know, a, a challenge of um, the electors ruling uh, in Arizona. But also it was Gosar who had uh, mounted the first Stop the Steal rally in Phoenix, Arizona, and continued to do so and continued to claim vociferously that the election was stolen. You know, I thought, okay, this is a guy who merits further inspection. And I did so. And the more I did, the more I became interested in an additional proposition, you know, kind of a conundrum regarding Gosar which is that here's a guy who's regarded as kind of a crazy guy, uh, both by Republicans and Democrats, but who, when he looks at himself in the mirror, sees a serious legislator. He really like intends to get things done, not just for his district, but for the state of Arizona. But in the past, he has uh, co-sponsored bipartisan legislation with Democrats. But after January the 6th, and after Gosar refused to re recognize the legitimacy of Biden's election to the point where to this day he still does not call him President Biden, but Mr. Biden, Democrats have recognized him as totally unserious. So in a way, Gosar's kind of this cautionary tale of what happens when you devote yourself to the attention economy on the right wing. And what happens is you essentially prohibit yourself from being taken seriously. You, you cease to become a positive force in governance. And, and that, I say, is a cautionary tale for the Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and others of her stripe who would like to get things done, should um, the Republicans reclaim the majority, but who will find it very difficult to mount coalitions, not just with the Democrats, but with their fellow Republicans who you know, often abhor them. What was the level of cooperation with uh, various characters, uh, with someone like Gosar? There's yeah, one point yeah. in the, the book where you talk about how Marjorie Taylor Greene was avoiding you for a long time. So you, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you busted into one of her press conferences in, in the Capitol to ask her some questions. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Greene process was... Yeah. yeah. Well, tell us about both of those. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, I will. I mean, the thumbnail sketch on both is that Gosar himself never cooperated, but current and former staff members did. And um, with Green, she gave me the Heisman for a full year, but I kept showing up to events, kept showing up to her district, started getting to know her top aides, and they ultimately, after 13 months, convinced me to sit down for an off-the-record interview with them. I think, it, you know, you, you know, Ryan, as you know, that especially for these far-right politicians who inhabit a media ecosystem that's basically just Trump propaganda, you know, One American News and Newsmax and, and Real America's Voice, and to them, that's what the media is. You know, right. Meanwhile, we, you know, at Politico and The New York Times and CNN and the like, are the people who perpetuated the Russia collusion hoax and are the avowed enemies of the American people in cahoots with communist Democrats, et cetera. So for someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene to then sit down with someone like me and recognize what wasn't going on. First, I didn't have like sulfur fumes coming out, you know, and, and uh, I have a Southern accent like she does. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you can, and, and you can turn you know, that thing on when you want, probably. I, no comment on that, but you know, it's, um, <laughs> but but um, I do, uh, and I had taken the time to meet her on her own terms, to get to know her, to get to know her district, to do all this reporting, so that I wasn't going to waste her time or insult her intelligence by asking her the same old questions everybody had already asked her. So all that I think she found intriguing and ultimately led to a succession of interviews. And uh, Gosar also, you know, only talks to um, people from Breitbart and Gateway Pundit and and. Uh, he agreed to a sit-down interview and then the night beforehand um, canceled, uh, saying <laughs> that his people said that the January 6th committee was called him a person of interest and that somehow that witch hunt meant that he wasn't going to participate in this dialogue. It was a non sequitur, but anyway, there it was. But I did fortunately have a pretty granular understanding of Gosar and what he was up to because current and former staffers were really, really forthcoming. And a lot of people in Arizona politics and in his district, uh, which I visited three or four times, you know, were helpful as well. So I did not feel hamstrung by his lack of participation. And as you know, okay, you never want to turn down an interview with the principal, with a subject of someone you're writing about. But they're not always terribly helpful, you know, and, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah. you know, they've got legacies to defend. They're running out the clock. So I, I feel quite comfortable with my level of knowledge about Gosar, put it that way. Um, just to go back to, some, to what we were talking about at the very beginning, and that is, what's your advice for covering the modern Republican Party? Um, obviously, this is a question that everyone has struggled with since the escalator. <laughs> and... You know, you've done it a long time now, and um, how have you changed in your coverage, and what do you think the keys are to looking at the modern Republican Party in a accurate, truthful, fair way that doesn't betray the values of our, our business, but isn't sort of hamstrung by some of the traditions of our business? All right. Well, you know, I haven't changed in my approach to covering them. I mean, you used the word earlier anthropological. And actually, I, I am driven by and honestly interested in why people do what they do, why people believe what they believe. And, that's, and that surmounts any kind of personal value system I have or something like that. But yeah. at the same time, you know, I've had to reckon with uh, the <laughs> precarious grip on truth that uh, Trump and others of the 
MAGA stripe have held over the years. And, you know, in the New York Times, they avoided for years using the word lie because it goes to motive, it goes to a state of mind. But I ultimately, when the editor and I were discussing the title of the book, decided that this was a title and a subtitle that I could defend syllable by syllable. You know, the, the, the weapons of mass delusion, the people being deluded are the tens of millions of conservatives who believe not just that the election was stolen, but a host of other adjacent untruths and conspiracy theories. And uh, that the party, you know, has lost its mind was made manifest in January the 6th. But in what has happened since then with, you know, the shape-shifting of characterizations of January the 6th, you know, ranging from, um, you know, it was an ordinary tourist visit to it was um, all a setup to, you know, it was really Pelosi's fault because, um, you know, she didn't hire security to um, uh, it was all done by Antifa in cahoots with the FBI. And what I'm trying to say, Ryan, is that it's come to a point where I, I don't believe that it is casting judgment to nonetheless use, you know, words that articulate plain truths, that um, delusion has taken place, that it is en masse, that there are agents of it, and that uh, the party has taken leave of its senses. And, uh, you know, there are certainly people who bridle at that characterization, and it's much more out there than, you know, my most recent book about Bush's decision to invade Iraq is ultimately very, very critical of that decision, but its title to start a war, you know, is quite neutral. And and this is less so, but I just think that's where we're at today. And then f- finally, Robert, what's, what is next year going to look like? What is the House of Representatives under Kevin McCarthy with Joe Biden as president and people like Green and Gosar newly empowered? What is... What is that all going to look like come January? Yeah, the path of least resistance, I think, for the House Republicans will be let's do a whole bunch of investigations relating to Hunter Biden, et cetera. That's going to be the low-hanging fruit, along with stripping Swalwell, Tlaib, and Omar and others of certain committee assignments. What's going to be more interesting to see, I think, are two things. First, uh, McCarthy, you know, back in um, 2011, was holding the debt ceiling hostage by, you know, um, uh, wrapping it up with Obamacare, with the Affordable Care Act. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what they use as leverage to raise the debt ceiling. And I suspect it will be any number of social wedge issues. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, McConnell is effective in cobbling together some kind of agreement uh, with the Biden administration. Where, where it gets a little more complicated, and this is kind of the second thing that'll be interesting to see, is um, we know that the Republicans will, will, in the House, will pass things or attempt to pass things that will never become law, right? You know, it's, um, uh, Biden will never sign them in. And if the Democrats hold on to, you know, the majority in the Senate, uh, it'll be dead on arrival in the upper chamber. But, you know, we know that Marjorie Taylor Greene and others in the House Freedom Caucus want to see, you know, the, the border sealed off. If Greene has her way, there will be a four-year moratorium on immigration. If she and others have their way, there will be a rolling back of climate change uh, regulations and legislation. There will be a nationwide ban on abortion. There will probably be pro-gun legislation. This is what they want, and what'll be interesting to see is whether they can actually build sufficient coalitions within their own conference uh, to even get the show vote passed. 
I really don't know that that's the case. And and uh, I, I made note in the Marjorie Taylor Greene excerpt in the New York Times magazine that her chief of staff is Tom DeLay's former chief of staff, a very, very effective legislator. So she's not just doing everything to be a right-wing performance artist. She actually wants to get some of this stuff done. Um, but I don't know that you can get these extreme policies passed, even with within the Republican conference on its face. I also don't know if you can get them passed while you're constantly vilifying members of your own party as being rhinos. So, you know, those to me will be the most interesting developments on the House side for sure. Robert, thank you very much for doing this. The book is great. I hope you sell a lot of copies and uh, appreciate you talking, man. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of Audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.